I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. Oh, that's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I've been going through a little bit of a Star Trek sort of kick lately, right? But specifically, it's been mostly about the next generation. You know, sometimes these, these Star Trek binges, they are about Star Trek and, I guess, other facets, and... That's not really what's been going on here. Lately, it's been pretty much all Next Generation all the time. And I saw an episode of The Next Generation that I just kind of want to talk about a little bit, you know, because at least on paper, what I'm supposed to do for my podcast is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But guys, the simple reality is I spend the majority of my time talking about comics, not so much the other two. A little bit, but not not as much as you'd think. So this seemed like a pretty good opportunity to sort of balance the ledger on that a little bit. This is a Next Generation episode called Schisms. This comes from, this is episode 5 of season 6. Original air date is October the 19th, 1992. Director is Robert Weimer. Teleplay by Brandon Braga. Story by Jean Louise Mathias and Ron Wilkerson. And this isn't going to be like a commentary as such. It's mostly just going to be me shooting the bull about this episode, right? So there's your backstory. Now, in terms of this actual episode, you know, this is something that I, I've always sort of wanted st- from Star Trek in some form or another, whether it's a movie or if it's an episode of the original series or next generation fucking whatever right always wanted an episode along these lines where they meet a new and hostile alien race right for those of you who don't know the i guess the phenomenon of ufo's <clears throat> this is something that's always been sort of interesting to me I don't really know what to think of UFOs, at least in terms of what are they, you know, where do they come from, what's their purpose, you know, all that stuff. It seems realistic to me that all of these reports of that, that, that have come through over the decades of people reporting this, that, or the other, something is happening, you know? What is it? and who's doing it and for what purpose these things are up for grabs but i think the to kind of rise above the weeds a little bit i think the bare minimum that we can all agree on is that something really fucked up 
has happened to a lot of people, right? And at least in the popular consciousness, what a lot of people want to ascribe this to is alien abductions on some level or another. So I say, fuck it, let's just ride with that. You know, I'm not saying I believe it. I'm not saying I don't believe it. I'm just saying that, you know what, that explanation is no more and no less realistic than anything else based on what little data we really have here. So, at least as far as fiction is concerned, why not run with that, right? And so, because of that, the type of... When aliens show up in movies or shows or just fucking whatever, I guess the basic story archetype that I like the most is kind of of the War of the Worlds model, where they show up and their intentions are, shall we say, something less than pure, right? Now, a lot of people aren't, especially over the last 10 or so years, maybe more, <clears throat> a lot of people aren't really big on the the works of M. Night Shyamalan and that's fine but I happen to think that his movie Signs it's not exactly perfect in terms of what I want to see from a sort of like an alien invasion type of movie but it's pretty close you know I mean that's the type of story that I kind of like seeing in that in, in that <clears throat> in that type of story you know not necessarily the, the group of people that figure out the secret weapon and they're the ones that turn the tide, because that's definitely not Signs. That's really more War of the Worlds. But War of the Worlds and Signs both, to me, those stories are... I don't know why, but those are the most satisfying to me on, on whatever level in terms of alien invasion stories. I mean, I'm not exactly of the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, school of alien first contact type stuff if those uh, if the uh, beings who are controlling these these UFOs are in any way sentient by which I mean mortal to me if if you can say that it's one less step you have to take to say that they're probably an alien race and if you say that they're an alien race, by itself, that's one less step you have to take towards saying that their intentions are hostile, all right? And so all of that seems very persuasive to me. And I think that's probably a good sort of background into why exactly it is that Schisms as an episode works for me. And, you know, if you'd asked me ahead of time, I would have said that it, it'd be kind of hard to do a sort of alien abduction, UFO, hostile alien race, or unknown alien race in the Star Trek idiom. And the reason for that is because obviously Star Trek is predicated upon mankind having journeyed to the stars, and we've met many of these alien races. And so because of that, it's not, it's not quite as easy to do a story about you know, this hostile alien race and, you know, what do they want with us? What are their, what are, what are their purposes with us? What are their intentions? You know, it, it's a lot harder, I would have thought, to do that type of story. But one of the things I've kind of had to do over the years is realize it's not really wise to bet against the next generation. I mean, I'm actually starting to think, you know, like the more I watch these old Next Generation episodes, they truly could have done whatever the hell they wanted to do, and it would have turned out well, you know? Very rarely have I seen an idea uh, for a Next Generation episode just completely fall apart. I mean, I guess the law of numbers says that had to have happened at some point or another, it's just I haven't found that, epi that episode yet. Now truth in advertising, it does need to be said, I haven't really watched too much of anything prior to the third season, so just bear that in mind. But basically, the story synopsis for Schisms as an episode is as follows. Several of the Enterprise crew members are having difficulty sleeping 
or else have just lost track of time, and they find themselves having strange emotional responses to normal objects. The affected crew realize they have had common experiences, and with Counselor Troy's help, use the holodeck to collectively reconstruct and refine their fragmented memories and impressions of the event. Their collaboration results in a device like an operating table in a dark room filled with mysterious noises. They come to the conclusion that they've all been to a similar place. Dr. Crusher examines them, finding evidence of sedation as well as subtle changes to their bodies, such as a microscopic misalignment of the bones in Commander Riker's arm, indicating that it's been severed and then reattached. I'm going to put this, actually, this story synopsis on pause here and say that, you know, again, that just kind of speaks to the authenticity of schisms as an episode, that in a great many, in a great many of these alien abduction and UFO stories, what you basically hear is tales of people who go on alien spaceships and they hang around, they have conversations. A couple of them have even gotten laid a couple of times. And then they get sent home, none the worse for wear. But sometimes, not often, but sometimes, these people come back from whatever ordeal they survived and they have bruises, they have lesions, they have cuts, they have broken bones. Some of them even have scars from whatever whatever procedure they've undergone. They've actually got physical fucking scars. And so <clears throat> this bit about the bones in Commander Riker's arm being slightly out of alignment by one or two microns, to me, that just kind of speaks to the authenticity that some of these UFO stories have. Like I say, something is happening to these people, so the fuck is it, you know? And that's very much the question that the viewer is supposed to ask after it comes out during Dr. Crusher's examination of, of Riker. You know, holy shit, the, the, the skeletal alignment of the bones in your arms are off by a couple of microns. You know, how the fuck does that even happen? And the only thing that makes sense to Dr. Crusher is she says that his arm has been severed physically from his body and then surgically reattached. So, the fuck is going on, you know? So, anyway, getting back into the synopsis, they, meaning the Enterprise crew, they realize they're being abducted from the ship to be experimented upon. When they wonder if this is happening to other crew members as well, they ask the ship's computer to list any missing members and find that the other two crew members, or or rather that two other crew members, are currently missing. One soon reappears in his cabin but dies shortly after he's found, his blood having been transformed into a liquid polymer. Geordi and Data also discover particle emissions in one of the cargo bays, creating an an expanding subspace rift which threatens to breach the hull of the ship. They devise a method to counter the emissions and close the rift, but they need a way to trace the emissions to the source, and they don't have a really good way of doing that. Commander Riker volunteers as he's been taken several nights in a row, the thinking being he's going to be abducted no matter what, so doesn't it make sense for him to have some kind of homing device attached so that people can uh, aboard the Enterprise, the Enterprise crew can zero in on his location and shut this shit down? So, Dr. Crusher injects him with a stimulant intended to counteract the sedative his captors are using, and from there he carries a tracking device which can be detected from the Enterprise once he's been abducted. Riker is again taken that night and finds himself in a strange environment on an operating table near the other missing crew member surrounded by busy aliens. Meanwhile, the rift continues to expand and Captain Picard orders Geordi to begin the attempt to close it. Riker pretends to be unconscious until the aliens are distracted by the now fluctuating rift. He frees himself, picks up the other crew member, and uh, jumps through the rift, which is now large enough for them to pass through bodily. They appear in the cargo bay moments before the rift is closed. The aliens manage to send a brief energy pulse through at the last second, which disappears through the Enterprise hull and out into space. Picard wonders if the, if the pulse is a probe sent by the aliens attempting to communicate with the Enterprise, but Riker, 
noting their methods, which resulted in the death of one of the crew, suspects their motives are something less than benign. The end. And I truly do mean, by the way, the end, because this is pretty much the last we see of this alien race, as far as I know. I, I don't think they come back during the during the entire run of Star Trek The Next Generation. And guys, I got to tell you, that's a damn shame. Because, I mean, it's one thing for, say, Starfleet or the Enterprise or whoever to have conflicts with the Romulans or, or with the Cardassians or, or fucking, or whoever, you know, the Klingons, whoever, you know. But those are known alien races, you know. Starfleet knows who they are, and on a social, cultural, and historical level, Starfleet knows where they are coming from. But this unnamed alien race that provides the major threat here in schisms, the Enterprise crew don't know who they are, they don't know what they want, they can't even fucking decipher their language, you know? And it's pretty much outright said that these aliens... They occupy a very different plane of existence. You know, you could almost want to say it's like a separate universe. You know, they don't exist in the same in, in the same universe as the Enterprise. They're actually a separate universe. And this this rift is the only gateway from one place to the other. And the aliens can't come through to the Enterprise's universe. So they bring people from the Enterprise's universe over to their own universe. And... Number one, that's just a really fucking clever way of setting up an alien species that somehow the Federation doesn't know anything about. It actually makes a lot of sense. You know, if they occupy a completely different universe, then of course we're, Starfleet isn't going to know anything about them, or the Federation will, will never have made contact with them, or, 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 or what have you. You know, it's a, it's a very clever way to make them truly alien and foreign. And because of that, the universal translator isn't going to work. Because of that, there is no peace treaty. There's this, there's even a degree to which, you know, a lot of Starfleet protocol arguably doesn't even apply to this situation. You know, I, these guys are, in, in their own kind of way, I mean, you pretty much have to rebuild your entire protocol, your entire way of doing things and interacting and making first contact with alien species simply because of the fact that... Number one, their, ho their intentions could very well be hostile. And number two, you have no way of knowing either way, you know? The thing is, the jury is still kind of out on what exactly their intentions are. It's, it's totally possible that they didn't intend for any of the destruction and death that they caused. They never intended for any of that to happen. But because of the fact that they, that they reside in a universe that, for all anybody knows, is governed by completely different, I don't know, like laws of physics or scientific properties, or what have you, who's to say that maybe they they thought that what they were doing was totally harmless, and they had no idea uh, that this stuff was actually going to be harmful and destructive, lethal even. And so a lot of things are still left on the table at the end of this episode. And like I say, I mean, that's the kind of alien story that I just tend to gra gravitate toward, you know? Nothing against the, the close encounters of the third kind type of model, where the aliens are basically here to to make friends and all of that stuff. I don't really have a problem with that. It's just I find that a little bit hard to believe, you know? If aliens are really out there, and if the aliens come to Earth, just, you know what, maybe it's just I'm, maybe it's just that I'm just kind of a jaded, cynical, skeptical fuck, but I don't think they're necessarily here to sing Kumbaya, guys, you know? I mean, if you look at all, you know, all through history, and I'm not sure how relevant or relevant that really is to stories concerning first contact and aliens and all of this sort of stuff, but it's the best guide that we have, so damn it, I kind of have to use it. But if you look at history, what you see is when one group has any kind of power, whether it's technological or whatever else, any kind of power over another group, that smaller group tends to get fucked over. You know, sooner or later, they tend to get fucked over by somebody in the bigger group, even if that's not necessarily the bigger group's actual agenda. Somebody in the bigger group is going to fuck with 
somebody in the smaller group. It's just inevitable. So even if it's not necessarily the, the alien's avowed purpose to come here and cause all kinds of havoc and trouble and all that kind of stuff, all it takes is one bad apple, guys. And after that, who knows? You know? So, like I say, a lot of stuff is left on the table here. And the thing about this episode that just plays for me is the fact that the Enterprise's usual protocols for first contact and arguably even the Prime Directive and other sorts of things, that stuff's all fucking useless here. You know, none of that stuff applies just because of the the way that the aliens are making contact, you know, and the things that they're doing to the abducted Enterprise crew members and all of that sort of stuff. You know, nothing is... Nothing can be taken for granted, I guess is the point, you know? And number one, like I say, I find that extremely persuasive just in terms of narrative fiction and, you know, what I want to see in these types of alien stories. But it's also persuasive just in, like I say, the idiom of Star Trek. And, you know, they think they know so fucking much about the universe and, and you know, the way that things really are. And what they discover is they don't know half of what they think they do. You know, they're able to put a lot of pieces together. They're able to make a lot of educated guesses. But at the end of the day, they never actually had dialogue with any of these aliens. So who's to say, you know? And all around, I just find that extremely persuasive. But I really like the way that this episode ends. And with this, I'm actually going to take a break and move on to my next segment. But I really dig the way that this episode ends. Captain's log, Stardate 46191.2. The Tetrion emissions in Cargo Bay 4 have ceased, and there have been no further indications of alien intrusions. All Enterprise crew members are safe and accounted for. But we are still left with some unanswered questions. Based on the information gathered from Commander Riker's tricorder, we have determined that the molecular structure of the alien life forms is solanogen-based. We think that's why they couldn't come through into our space as easily as they could take us into theirs. They needed to learn how to remodulate their cellular energy states in order to survive in our universe. The tricorder readings indicate they created a small pocket of our universe in their laboratory to keep those they abducted alive. Like putting a fish in a bucket of water. It's probably what they were trying to do in Cargo Bay 4, create a pocket of their universe in ours. What can we do to prevent this from happening again? Looks like they found us initially by discovering my modified sensor signal. We should warn all Starfleet ships not to make that same mistake. Have we any idea what came through the rupture before we were able to shut it down? No, sir. We were unable to track it once it left the cargo bay. Maybe it was a probe of some kind. Possibly they were simply curious. Explorers, like ourselves. Ensign Rager and I were lucky to have escaped. Lieutenant Hagler's dead. Whoever it was sent that thing was more than simply curious. traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows, but all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about small things. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run, with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But, as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. 
now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com. I've got a Star Trek The Next Generation comic book that I want to talk about. Now, I've spent the majority of this podcast talking about comics, and I i guess you, you, you can't fight City Hall sometimes. So, anyway, this is Star Trek The Next Generation, number 51, published by DC Comics. Cover date is early October 1993. On sale date is August 17th, 1993. Story title is Life Signs. Writer, or writers, are Judith Reeves Stevens and Garfield Reeves Stevens. Penciler is Pete Krause, of whom I am a very big fan. Inker is Michael Christian. Letterer is Robert M. Panaha, I guess is how you pronounce it. Colorist is Rick Taylor. Editor is Alan Gold. Synopsis for Life Signs is as follows. Investigating an unexpected supernova, an Enterprise Away team discovers an exposed shelter on a nearby planet. The shelter was originally two kilometers below the surface, and Troy senses some kind of life inside. She touches the shelter and is knocked unconscious by an energy discharge. Troy recovers in sickbay, and Dr. Pulaski finds no damage. Data and Jordy use the ship's phasers to cut through the, the shelter and cut it open, but don't find any life forms inside. When the away team beam, uh, beams back to the ship, several energy creatures from the shelter transport with them and enter into the ship's systems. The creatures begin draining power from the ship while the nearby star shows signs of going nova again. Troy uh, communicates with the creatures and learns that they feed on stellar Nova and were responsible for the Nova, which is what started this whole away team mission in the first place. To prevent the creatures from using the Enterprise to travel through Federation space creating supernovae, Data devises a scheme to contain the creatures. He succeeds, but it nearly costs him his life, and, and after that, Troy senses something in Data for the first time. Specifically... An emotion. The end. So, what did I think? Well, from the outset, you know, this is a, a little bit of an impressionistic type of cover. It doesn't... It hints at shit that you're going to see in this comic, but it doesn't really... If you don't already know the story of this comic, if you're not already familiar with it, this cover isn't really going to make a whole lot of sense to you. So, if you do, it you, you can actually see a little bit more of the impressionism that I guess is that the cover artist is going for here. So, the cover doesn't necessarily literally show you what happens in this story, but there is still some kind of truth to it. So, that's not good and it's not bad. It's simply true. So, anyway... You get into the actual story, though. Basically, this this issue kicks off with... This is the type of scene that you've probably seen a million times in The Next Generation, where an away team goes to uh, a planet's uh, surface, and they basically are wandering around with their little handheld PDA-looking things, and they're taking measurements and all of that kind of fun shit. And, you know, I don't know why, but it... it it was as I was reading this part of the story, I actually found myself wondering, you know, is this really the sort of thing that you would want to send senior officers down to do? Because, I mean, I look around and I don't see a single red shirt anywhere here. You know, it's all senior officers. You've got Worf, Data, Troy, and Riker. And it just kind of makes me think, you know, 
I can understand maybe sending Riker. I mean, he's still, you know, a part of the senior staff, so I don't know. But it does make sense that you'd want to have some kind of command, you know, representing on on the planet's surface. So that I get. But you've got Troy, the only ship's counselor. You've got Worf, the head of security. I mean, just on and on. And is this really, I mean, is this really the away team you'd want to put together to go into an unknown environment when... You have no idea just what the fuck's going to happen. I really don't know. So it just, it, it makes you wonder. That's the point. It makes you wonder. So basically, whatever happens, happens. Troy touches her finger to this enclave, this sort of dome-looking thing. She gets the shit zapped out of her, and she comes to on sick bay. And after that, we're pretty much in full swing with the story. And it does need to be said that... You know, Dr. Pulaski is kind of a bitch to to Data. I mean, she just she just talks shit a little bit. I mean, uh, basically, when, when Troy comes to, she says, I can sense the emotions of everyone in this room. Except for you, Data, I'm sorry. And Dr. Pulaski basically fires off with, Why be sorry? Machines, however sophisticated, can't have emotions. And, you know, Data, I don't think he understands necessarily the idea of rudeness. You know, I don't know if, I don't know if he really gets that. And so he kind of misses the point here a little bit, you know, that this chick has been kind of a bitch. And he actually just lays out the facts. You know, he basically says, since you've been on board for only a few weeks, Doctor, you might not know that I have behavioral subroutines that seem analogous to certain emotional states. For example, I experience an analog of pride at being in Starfleet. I also, and then she cuts him off, and Pulaski says, Sorry, Data, an analog is one thing, but you've got no heart. Look, stop trying to understand what you can never experience. You're a machine. Reprogram yourself or something. And, you know, I, I'm sorry, but... Number one, that's just kind of a dick thing to say. But number two, I don't think Riker would just let that slide. You know, I mean, even if that's not necessarily, you know, violating protocol or something like that, I think, I think Riker would stand up for data. You know, I mean, you know, I think Riker's point in that, you know, since he's the the guy that fucking heard it, I think his point there would be that, you know, the entire point of that episode, The Measure of a Man, is that the next generation is kind of playing around a little bit with the idea of, what exactly is sentience and what goes into it? And by any reasonable standard, an artificial intelligence like Data, who is evolving and, and growing all the time and is becoming, depending on how you view such things, less robot-like in his behavior and more human in his purpose, if not necessarily in terms of actual success, you know, how is he not sentient? And I'm sorry, that's just fucking rude. That's a rude thing to say to somebody, you know? But nobody calls her out on it. So what do you want to bet that we're going to hear more about this before too long, you know? On a thematic level, if nothing else. So from there, we get a little bit of a of what George Lucas would call, this is a pointer scene, and it's on page four, and it basically explains, you know, now that we've got the basic setup for the plot established as well as the a plot you know basically the the i guess the core premise of the story and what's going to happen with this uninhabited now newly uninhabited world as well as goings on with with uh with uh, troy what exactly is is going to be happening over the next couple of pages it's the pointer scene that's what george lucas calls it because there was a fucking pointer scene in raiders of the lost ark the pointer scene get it and basically what comes out is that for some reason the sun is preparing to go nova again which is actually supposed to be impossible but the structure that's on the planet's surface can't possibly survive another explosion and so you know we've got basically 2 hours to figure out just what the fuck is going on here and then we got to get out of get the hell out of dodge and it does need to be said that you know, in 1993, if I'm not terribly mistaken, in 1993, 
Actually, 1993, I think that would have been Star Trek The Next Generation's seventh season, because this is October of 1993, at least is the cover date uh, for this comic. And so you would expect, you know, just to kind of tie in with the TV show, everybody would be wearing the newer uniforms, but they're not. Just about everybody on the ship is wearing that first season, second season type of uniform with that kind of embroidery on the shoulder, which is, you know, that's kind of an interesting choice, but, you know, whatever. I, I mean, I kind of like the uh, post, I don't know, fourth season uniforms that they wore basically for the rest of the show's run. Those are the Starfleet uniforms I like for the next generation as a TV show, anyway. So, whatever, that's that's just... Originally, I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting choice, but, you know, whatever, fine. This takes place, you know, according to the star date, what I'm guessing is this... Or, rather, what I guessed before uh, actually doing some research on this, what I guessed was that this story probably takes place right around the time of maybe the first season, you know, that's what I kind of figured. But I, when I actually started doing some research on all of this and checked into it, basically what I discovered is that you could view this, epi uh, this episode, forgive me, this issue as taking place right after the second season episode, The Child. So basically the second season premiere basically is when Life Signs, this comic book story, is, that's when that's taking place. So basically between The Child and when silence has lease, basically those two episodes, this takes place between them, you know? So that's an important thing to remember because it looks to me, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's just a coloring issue that's going on here, I don't know. But it looks to me like the uniform that Troy is wearing is a little bit more in the style of her fifth season uniform. So, what the fuck? And my answer to that is, I have no friggin' idea. So, make of that whatever you want, I guess. So, anyway, basically, though, this scene that we're seeing right here on page four is basically intended to, to lay down, number one, there's a big giant fucking threat that's closing in on the Enterprise, and number two, we've got two hours to figure out just what the hell's going on around here, after which... Well, after which we need to get the hell out of Dodge. And the reason that they're staying inside the system is because that structure that's on the planet's surface is going to be friggin' demolished when that sun goes nova again. And so they need to get the survivors, if any, out of that structure and get them on board the Enterprise so that everyone can get out of there. And so basically what we're seeing here, starting on page 5, is the crew's first real attempts at getting that. And this ends up setting off a little bit of a chain reaction with Troy. She goes, at the bottom of page five, she goes Jean Grey Phoenix for just a second. And basically what she's seeing is, she. in fact, it's not even seeing, it's basically what she's experiencing is the emotions and the sensations of whatever it is that's hidden inside of the structure that the Enterprise crew is attempting to open. And it's basically, freedom, freedom, we can finally get out of here, and shit like that. So the cause of all of this is the Enterprise basically blasting open this, again, I'm not sure what else to call it, this bunker, this structure, this shelter, whatever you want to call it, trying so that the uh, Enterprise crew can at least try to rescue any refugees that are trapped inside of the structure, because guys, the sun's about to go Nova, and their bunker isn't going to survive this one. So, anyway, so Troy basically freaks the shit out over all of this. She gets investigated by Dr. Pulaski, who says, just as before, no serious damage. Troy comes to and basically says she can't sense anything inside of the shelter anymore. And Riker says that whatever was inside the shelter didn't survive exposure to the phaser's sidestream radiation. So, the assumption that everybody's operating under here is the Enterprise crew basically killed 
whatever was living inside of that shelter on the surface. So that is double plus non-good. Then it comes out that they've got exactly 70 minutes before shit hits the fan uh, with Epsilon Miranda and the, and the sun goes Nova again. So they basically, whatever studies they need to do, readings they need to take, measurements and all that stuff, they need to take them and then get out of there. So at that moment, the energy creatures latch themselves on to Jordy and Data and they get beamed back onto the Enterprise. And at first, it looks like, you know, shit is about to go down. Worf scrambles the security team to the transporter room. But basically, it comes out that, at least superficially, everything is going to be okay. Because the Mirandans, for lack of a better way to describe them, the transport, and Data says, the transporter's biohazard filters were not effective against this type of energy-based life form. The shelter must have been designed to maintain life in a self-sustaining energy matrix. When a suitable power supply or rather with a suitable power supply these beings might have been alive might have been kept alive indefinitely which prompts riker to say well what do you mean might data says these beings these mirandans are dying they've blindly attached themselves to the transporter circuits but no power source on the ship is compatible with their present form they, the longer they remain in this glowing form, the, sa- the faster they'll simply fade away. And what we're seeing on the page is these energy creatures that were basically like fireworks on the previous page. Now they're just tiny little sparks, and then they just sort of burn out. And Riker says, zero readings. The Mirandans couldn't survive outside their shelter. Data reports that they are dead. And this kind of hits Picard right in the balls because what he says is an entire world's history, its cultures, its dreams, all lost. So he basically then says that he's going to allow Dr. Ruiz 30 minutes inside of the system uh, to launch sensor satellites to take readings on the next supernova, after which they've got to get the hell out of the system. Dr. Ruiz says that they're actually running 10 minutes ahead of schedule, so they're actually coming up on final satellite insertion in the next three minutes. They From there, we get a little bit of a callback to what happened earlier in the story with Dr. Pulaski basically talking shit to Data. And Data basically says, in effect... I have no emotions, which means I'm not alive. And that sort of runs... Uh, a, that that runs contrary, at least somewhat, to... I'm not sure what exactly... It basically comes down to, was Descartes right? Whenever he said... Basically, what he postulated was thought means existence cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am the fact that i have the ability to think and to reason to understand and discover these things are what are at least in part these are the things that mean that i'm alive the fact that i'm able to do these things mean that i'm alive basically the fact that i am sentient the fact that i can i i can think and i can reason that is the it's the knowledge of knowledge that is how i know that i exist and so if i'm not mistaken basically what aristotle had to say about the subject is that life is good and so and I don't think he means that in the sense of quality of life. I mean, he, he means life is goodness. And so somebody who knows that he is conscious, that he's alive, that he sees, he hears, he walks, all of these other, all of these other sort of human endeavors, the faculty for doing that that sort of consciousness, the fact that you're aware of these exercises that you're doing. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to paraphrase this I, because, I, I mean, I actually used to have this entire discourse memorized, but th- those days are, it seems, long behind me. But when you see 
you know, when you, you're, you're, the fact that your consciousness of your own, rather that, that, the fact that you are conscious of your own perceptions, that you're aware that you know that you think, if that makes sense. There's a chain of logic here. Whenever you think, when you're conscious that you're thinking, to be conscious that you're thinking is to be conscious of the fact that you are alive. And so, as Descartes would have it, and I think as Aristotle would have it, Data is alive because he thinks and because he knows that he is thinking. Does that make sense? And so, I'm not saying that Aristotelian philosophy should necessarily be the underpinnings of the definitions of consciousness and sentience in the 24th fucking century. I can understand that maybe they would have a different definition by that time. But nevertheless, Aristotle, I think, is always going to be important. And so, because of that, doesn't it kind of make sense that Data would think that he's acting a little bit hastily? Whenever he says that if he wants to basically regard himself as an unfeeling machine, that's fine. But you're, you know, if I've got one fucking criticism about my generation, it's just listen sometime to how often people say, I feel that something, 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 you know? Well, I just don't feel right about that, or that doesn't feel right to me. Or the way that I feel about something, you know, it's not, I mean, what they, elliptically, what they're saying is an expression of an opinion. I don't think that such and such is a good idea. I don't think that such and such is a good movie. I don't think that such and such is a good song, fucking whatever, you know, but they don't ever say that. What they say is, I don't feel, and I'm sorry, the way you feel is fucking irrelevant, you know? What matters in life are facts, or for that matter, what you think. Even if what you're thinking is completely your opinion, your feelings have jack fucking shit to do with it, you know? But it's just this weird thing that's kind of crept into the modern day discourse, you know, that feeling when, you know, it's just fucking retarded, you know? I don't get it. So anyway, I'm not... I didn't realize that page 13 was going to trigger a rant here, and for that I apologize, but I don't know. It's whatever. I'm just going to move on because this is just another rant waiting to happen. So we're getting into page 14 now, and this is sort of, I guess, the rising action of this story, where basically what we're seeing is the Enterprise launched their satellite probe, and they've still got a few minutes to spare. So what do you want to think? that something's going to happen to make their their departure from the system a little bit more of a close call. They launch their, their satellite probe, and so Picard orders uh, uh, Wesley Crusher, basically Helm, get us out of here, warp two. And Wesley does what he's supposed to do. He lays, he, he lays in uh, the uh, commands to do it, but nothing happens. They stay inside the system. And so astronomy makes contact with the bridge saying that the Mirandans basically just reappeared and they're draining all of the engine's powers. And so they're, in effect, the Enterprise is trapped in orbit over Miranda Epsilon. And guys, this, the Nova is about, to, is about to go down here. So what the fuck? So anyway... Basically, what's coming out here is the Mirandans are draining all power from propulsion and most of the power from the shields. And so what, what Riker says is that the Enterprise is actually going to survive the, the supernova, but the shields are going to allow the radiation into the ship and they're going to kill the crew. And so basically Data figures out... Actually, we'll come back to that because I don't want to get too far ahead of things here, but what at least Data starts to reason is that given the intellect that the uh, Mirandans have exhibited in taking over the Enterprise, I, meaning Data, I must conclude that they're actually, that they're intentionally refusing to communicate with us. You know, so it's not just that they can't communicate, they won't communicate. So, basically the crew figures that maybe Troy is the best hope of coming up with something that is going to shut the Mirandans down. But unfortunately, it's not 
it's not going to be quite so easy because this is a story and you can't have the story end on page fucking 15. So, but one of the things though that actually comes out in this, uh, in all of this is a little bit of the Mirandans backstory and what, what Troy reveals is that they're not actually Mirandans, they're Vortec. They're travelers who are imprisoned on this world. And they're afraid of a certain type of energy that actually can be found on, on the Enterprise. And what Data figures out is what they're afraid of is a, is a dilithium field containment unit. That is how you're going to be able to control the Vortec. And it's not going to be quite so simple because the Vortec used Troy to listen in on Data's plan to trap them. So now finding them is going to be a little bit more challenging since they've dispersed across the entire ship. It could take weeks to search for the Vortec. And unfortunately, the Enterprise only has a couple of minutes before the Nova happens. So what the fuck? And to make matters worse... It comes out that the Epsilon Miranda supernova was unexpected. The Vortec deliberately dropped a sun killer in so that they could trigger a nova. In effect, what the Vortec did was an act of planetary, well, genocide, I guess. So maybe that's the best way to do it. But another thing that comes out in all of this is... Uh, LaForge reports in saying that basically once the Vortec control the Enterprise, which they're in the process of doing, they'll be able to make thousands of sun killers and take them anywhere, anywhere inside of Federation space. So we can't really let that happen. And really, Data's the best guy to take, uh, to send out on this mission to contain the Vortec, simply because he doesn't actually have emotions that the Vortec can detect. And so he would be, in effect invisible to them. So Data basically wanders in to the hangar deck, finds the Vortec there, starts the process of trapping almost all of them, but one of them manages to attack Data and actually starts feeding off of them. But the the rest of the crew managed to save Data in time and it's actually kind of funny. You know, you see this this, there's this moment here on the last page of the comic. This is on page 24, where you've got Troy leaning over uh, Data. He's got his shirt pulled up, and he's holding Troy's hand, and there's all these weird fucked up tubes sticking out from under Data's shirt. And, you know, you could Photoshop her her word balloon to say a lot of kind of interesting things, considering the fact that they're holding hands and... Data's shirt is pulled up. So, hmm. But one of the things that Data asks is, he says to Jordy, he says, Jordy, I'm curious as to how you found me before the last Vortec had drained my power. And Troy answers, I sensed you, Data. When the Vortec had altered my sensitivity, I was able to sense something inside you. Something other than emotions. Perhaps someday I'll do so again. And Data replies to that, I hope you will, Counselor. And then Picard replies to that, that he's heard that hope is a powerful emotion. And nothing is more human, is Troy's follow-up to that. And that basically is closing the book on what Pulaski said earlier in the story, which is fine. I mean, I kind of like that, but like I said, I mean, the, I don't know, the, the Descartes model of the, that self-awareness means self-knowledge, which means existence. So in effect, sentience means existence. I think, therefore, I am. That's something that I don't think would have been lost on, of all people, Data. I mean, I could see anybody else on the ship not necessarily thinking in in Aristotle term, Aristotelian terms or Platonic terms, Descartes, any of the rest. But you would think that Data, 
of all people, Data would be sensitive to that. And so, whatever. I mean, it's not worth getting mad over, I guess. But it's... it's I at least kind of have to wonder, you know... Surely Data has read the works of Descartes. He's read Plato. He's read Aristotle. You know, he's read all of these guys. You know, and... Maybe it's just he needed momentary reassurance. Maybe it's just convenience for the plot. I don't fucking know. But it's a little hard to, for me, at least, to believe that Data wasn't aware of that. Now, in general, I haven't really talked a whole lot about the art here. And, guys, it does need to be said that I'm, I enjoy Pete Krause as an artist. Because, to me, he's one of those artists that he... He's always been, this is going to sound weird, but just hear me out. He's always been one of those artists who's been fairly consistent. You know, he's got a, he's got a fairly recognizable line style. And he makes, you know, tweaks and improvements in terms of, you know, his technique and basically storytelling. But to me, Pete Krause's work is by and large pretty recognizable, you know. And I think his work here on... The Next Generation actually predates his work on the uh, on the Captain Marvel Power of Shazam series, and that definitely predates his work on Irredeemable. But throughout, you know, you can see kind of common storytelling sort of flourishes, I suppose. You know, this is recognizably Pete Krause's work. And I've always enjoyed Pete Krause as a writer, or not a writer, as an artist. I've always enjoyed his work as an artist. But, and I don't mean this to be mean or disrespectful, he's not a flashy artist. You know, he's more of like the workman type. You know, he's there, he gets the job done, and it always looks great, but he doesn't really have a whole lot of showboating. I mean, this is definitely not a Jim Lee comic, just to kind of draw a parallel. And I've got nothing against Jim Lee, but I think this comic is maybe better for not being Jim Lee. I think it benefits for from being uh, a uh, for, from being done by Pete Krause. So I choose to see that as a good thing. And in general, I've always kind of had a sort of a soft spot for uh, this, I guess, iteration of Star Trek The Next Generation in comics. The reason for that is so many of these uh, of these comic stories could have been episodes of the TV show, but not necessarily. I mean, they were always comics, but sometimes they were very much of the, they were very much on the order of what you would see in the TV show, but they could be something other than the, than the TV show too. I mean, they could be big, widescreen, cinematic epics like you'd see in the movies, or they could be sort of quieter and more personal types of stories, specifically about characters, you know? Or in this case, I mean, Life Signs, you know, this could easily have been an episode of the TV show. Now, it never was, but it could have been, you know? It's not stylistically that far away from the TV show. But sometimes, stylistically, this comic was very far away from the TV show. Sometimes it was more like big screen cinema. Sometimes it was, you would get not exactly a sitcom of a comic, but kind of. Or you'd get other things that can only be done in comics, but they're using Star Trek The Next Generation to do it. And so overall, I think this whole series is really enjoyable. You know, it doesn't get a whole lot of play among Star Trek fans, I've noticed. But I th I've never read a bad episode. I keep saying episode. I've never read a bad issue of these Star Trek comics. And so I think they're really enjoyable. And I've seen Next Generation uh, comics in uh, the quarter bin, the 50 cent bin. I've seen them in basically the cheap section bunches and bunches of times. So I would actually recommend in this case going bin diving and seeing what you can find. This stuff is prime, prime grade material. If you dig Star Trek The Next Generation, I would say that the stuff in the comics is almost as good in many cases as what you'd see in the show. I mean, the show at this point is just, it's so fucking good that there's really not much in terms of Star Trek that's going to be able to compete with it, but Having said that, I think it at least meets the standard of good Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. And there are times when it breaks far the hell away from 
I guess, the conventions and tropes of television. And it does things that specifically only comics can do. And sometimes that means telling bigger stories. Sometimes that means telling smaller stories, too. So overall, this is definitely worth checking out. I do highly recommend it. So, anyway. So that, I think, is basically it for this comic. And as it happens, that's also it for me this week. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Check out the Man of Screen podcast at themanofscreen.podomatic.com. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. 
If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. 2TrueFreaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search 2TrueFreaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number 2. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about 2TrueFreaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>